Fantasy is a natural human activity. It does not destroy or even insult reason. For creative fantasy is founded on a recognition effect, but not a slavery to it. From an essay on fairy stories by J.R.R. Tolkien. I'm Nicholas Kotar, author of fantasy inspired by Slavic fairy tales and seeker after the good, the true, and the beautiful. You're listening to Fantasy for Our Time. In this podcast, I discuss classic and new fantasy media, have long and involved conversations with authors and storytellers, and explore how stories can help us all live a better, more fulfilling life. Hello, dear friends, and welcome to episode 10 of the podcast. Today, we're continuing our mini-series on violence in our fantasy media. I thought we would talk about something a little bit more specifically referencing violence. But as I was reading the news this week, I I walked across, I came across some interesting and rather disturbing headlines. So I decided that we would look at violence today through a slightly unexpected unexpected lens. I think you guys will like it, though. We'll be talking about Jonathan Haidt's article about the unique stupidity of the last 10 years. Yes, that is an ethic article, and it's actually called something like that. We'll also talk about how Batman mirrors the state of our society and why certain depictions of violence in books and on screens are definitely better for you than others. Today's show is sponsored by my wonderful patrons. They are the backbone of my work. They inspire me and they keep me creating, even when I don't feel like it. But with the world going crazy around us as it is, sometimes you feel, what is the point? But of course, this is the point. If you'd like to support this show, you can join for $2 a month and get access to early live streamed recordings, which include exclusive Q&A sessions afterwards. The community also has higher tiers that include things like free eBooks for life, merch, and exclusive experimental short fiction written by yours truly. I also occasionally give special gifts to my patrons, including recently a few free audiobook codes for the complete Raven Sun epic fantasy series on audiobook. Visit patreon.com forward slash Nicholas Kotar to find out more. And if you enjoy the podcast, I'd be very grateful if you left a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to them. It does help other people discover this podcast, especially in the early stages of its existence. And thank you to those who have already done so. Now, on to today's show. Last month, author and uh, wonderful human being Paul Kingsnorth made the curious claim that uh, the latest major Batman movie, as in the latest Batman movie to come out out of a series of Batman movies, because there's every few years there seems to be a new one, always seems to be a deep exploration of the kind of soul of our nation at the moment of the movie that the movie is making. Perhaps some might think that this is a silly claim. Until you happen, perhaps, to peruse some of the headlines from the last few days, one of which really struck me, and that was about the shooter, the shooter in Buffalo. Buffalo, New York. This obviously hits close to home for me, although Buffalo is not exactly close to where we are. We are in central New York. Buffalo is pretty, pretty far north, but still it's you know pretty much in our backyard. <clears throat> but really what struck me wasn't the proximity, but what was something that, that we found out later, and that is that the shooter, right before he um, did the deed, so to speak, uh, went onto a private online community and shared his plans with a select group of personally invited people. Now, those of you who have watched Matt Reeves' The Batman, the latest Batman movie, 
should be shuddering right now because of the eerie connection between art and life. This is exactly what the main antagonist of the film, the, the Paul Danos, the Riddler, does as he prepares his um, final coup de grace, his, his great um, terrorist uh, artwork, or whatever he might call it, uh, at the end of the movie. So I was I was left thinking that perhaps Paul King's North knows what he's talking about. So <clears throat> I thought I'd share his thoughts to start off and uh, start from there. So Paul King's North in his wonderful Substack, the Abbey of Misrule, which you all should sign up for. It's a wonderful, wonderful uh, series of essays, says the following. He says that, quote, my grand theory is that the representation of Batman at any given time in history mirrors the self-image of the America he walks through, and consequently the self-image of the West, which lives in America's shadow. Now, he's writing not as an American, but as, a, as an Englishman, which I think is interesting. He continues, here's Batman in, the 19, in 1966. Image, swinging 60s campiness in shiny pants and a sucked-in gut. Nothing really bothers him. He runs the world so he can afford to muck about. Here is Batman in 2022, and there's an image uh, in the text. Policing post-invasion Iraq, or Seattle last Tuesday, in full body armor whilst musing on his white privilege in a world which has soured on him but still buys his action figures, though mainly online, due to COVID restrictions and supply chain disruption. Actually, this would hold up just as well as the Joker theory. 1966, meet your slightly creepy over-enthusiastic uncle. 2021, call the exorcist, I repent. And the photo there is from uh, the Snyder cut of um, Justice League uh, with the, the Joker as played rather horribly um, by Jared Leto. Lest any of my American readers feel offended, continues Paul Kings North, I should say that those of us who come from a gasping post-imperial nations are just as flooded with psychic Batman residue as you are. I grew up with the 1960s Batman. I even had an excellent little metal Batmobile which fired real plastic bullets. When archaeologists of the future disinter the remains of our end-of-days culture, it'll be Batman all the way down. Yeah, I kind of agree with him. <laughs> He's obviously coming off a little bit snarky, but there's a, there's a lot to what he says. But before we get into that, the question that I suppose I should ask um, and I should answer is, is Batman fantasy? I mean, this is a podcast where we're talking about fantasy, fantasy fiction, fantasy media. So why am I talking about Batman? Well, I think maybe perhaps uh, the obvious and easy answer to that is that the superhero genre as it has come down to us through the last decades, and especially with the ascendancy of the MCU, is clearly a grappling with the idea of the demigod in, in a similar way to what it might have been uh, in, in the times of the Greeks. Though, of course, without the necessary um, reverence and worship that the Greeks would have had for their gods and their demigods, here, here it's all a matter of play. Except that, of course, anybody who notices everybody pays attention to the world of LARPing and, and, and cosplaying and all that, we'll see that there's a great deal of ritual in the way that people interact with uh, the heroes that they encounter in comics and in movies. Of course, Batman isn't a superhero, but he doesn't exist outside of a superhero sphere. He is an anti-superhero in the sense that he is so very human and his um, expertise is in technology and in smarts. But again, all that only makes sense as a contrast to Superman and to other members of the Justice League. 
So he very much fits in the world of the demigods of our 20th and 21st century, which I think is about as fantasy as it can get. Not epic, of course, not the traditional kind of fantasy that most of the time I like to talk about, but certainly it is a fantasy that is a mythic retelling of reality through the through the lens of story, which is really what I love and what we talk about here. So yes, Batman certainly is fantasy. And the connection, the connection between Batman and Joker, as mentioned by uh, Paul Kingsnorth, is certainly something very, very interesting. He's not the only one to notice it. Alyssa Wilkinson, the very excellent uh, film critic who writes now for Vox, in her wonderful article, Batman versus Joker, makes the point uh, that she believes that Matt Reeves' Batman is actually in direct communication with Joaquin Phoenix's Joker of 2019. In other words, if you look at the Batman, if you look at it through a slightly different different uh, lens than you might have looked at if you watched it without that knowledge, the Joker is in prison. But what Joker is it? Of course, it's not Joaquin Phoenix's, Phoenix's Joker that we encounter in the deleted scene and in the final scene of the movie. It's a much creepier um, version of the character played by Barry Keegan. <clears throat> but really, it's the same kind of Joker. And how do we know that? Well, based on the reality that Batman is living in. This is a Gotham that has no light in it. This is a Gotham where crime runs rampant, but it's not simply crime. It's it's a kind of crime as entitlement, crime as a response to your position as downtrodden human being. The kind of crime that the Joker... Um, that the Joker blesses, for lack of a better term, at the end of the movie. That kind of chaos, the kind of <clears throat> the kind of political and uh, ideologically justified madness that uh, Paul Dano's The Riddler then tries to channel. He's very much channeling what the Joker embodies: this kind of violence as a lashing out of the underrepresented the underprivileged, the downtrodden, the sick, um, the mentally deranged. It's certainly that world that this new Batman is living in. And his response initially to this world is, I am vengeance, the famous line that we keep seeing in the trailers and, and that keeps showing up over and over in the movie. And in the beginning, it seems that the Batman is doing a good thing. It seems that his I am vengeance line is doing a, a fair deal to contain the mad impulses of the Joker-inspired masses who are out there taking what has been denied them by fate. Just the mere presence of the dark shadows in Gotham's always dark streets is enough to remind the criminal of the fact, the presence of, or the possible presence of the Batman at any possible street corner behind any possible shadow. This is very much a Batman for our times, when especially the reality of what is going on after the George Floyd uh, killing, what we've seen in Portland and in Seattle, what we see continuing in, in some cities unabated, the kind of free-for-all that is masquerading as a, an expression of free speech. 
it's that world that this particular Batman is an answer to. But of course, the whole point of the movie, interestingly enough, is that regardless of what this Batman thinks he can do, regardless of the fact that this Batman is a, a vigilante for justice, he is still motivated primarily by an idea of vengeance. He is still primarily motivated by hatred, by anger. And you see that being played out throughout the course of that very long uh, Batman movie. And of course, it comes back to bite him in the end when the followers of Paul Dano's um, far-right inspired, far-right insurrectionist inspired coup consciously uh, use the phrase, I am vengeance, and throw it back into Batman's face. And so he's forced to do something that every hero is forced to do and come to terms with the reality that any kind of encounter with the dragon, any kind of encounter with the darkness, cannot be successfully overcome except by an act of self-sacrifice, except by an agreement with yourself that I am vengeance is not the way that you defeat the dragon because the dragon can simply use that against you. The darkness can simply use that against you. So in a, in a rather poignant moment, he, it seems according to Matt Reeves' cinematography, it looks like what he's doing, Batman, is actually sacrificing himself by jumping into the lake uh, inside Madison Square Garden. Um, I thought he was going to kill himself at that moment. That's certainly how the, how the frame seemed to suggest what was going to happen. And there was electricity in the air, and it seemed like he was going to do some sort of massive act of self-sacrifice and possibly sacrifice his life, or at least put himself in very severe danger to save other people. Actually, it was simply the going out into the abyss, the jumping out into the unknown. And the, the moment of the, ch the moment of the change, the eucatastrophe, so to speak, if we're talking about the language of the fairy tale, was him holding up this light for the people who were trapped in the darkness to come out and follow him. And he becomes his beacon. And at that point, after he's able to lead these people out by being a bearer of light, even though he is a creature of the darkness, the play of light and darkness is something that, that happens constantly in the movie. It was only then that he can realize that I was wrong, he, he thinks of himself, to embrace the idea of being vengeance against evil. I must now become something higher than that. Now, of course, anybody who's paying attention will recognize that this movement from simply vigilante acting out violent fantasies to somebody who becomes a kind of uh, standard bearer, um, uh, somebody who, who fights for the soul of his city, is a very minor step, right? In terms of the ultimate morality of the thing. It's not a huge deal. It's not a, hero it's not a heroic going outside of yourself that this Batman does. This is step one, and a very tiny step one in a much larger journey. And that's made clear, obviously, because this is going to be franchised and we're going to have many other sequels until it peters out as it normally does. And I don't think we're going to have anything as uh, complete and as contained as, as Nolan's uh, Batman series. But in any case, it's, it's seeming to tend in that direction. So that's also not surprising. It's not surprising that the vision of, of Batman as we have here is something that is hardly removed from violent strongman, slightly, slightly higher. And I think that's an, that's an expression and a reflection of the fact that we, as a nation, have very little hope and very little... Uh, we don't really see heroes around ourselves. We don't imagine heroes in our popular literature. And the best that we can do is something like this Batman, which I suppose is better than nothing. 
Now, before I talk about Nolan's Batman, I wanted to emphasize again the fact that um, what's going on in this new Matt Reeves Batman is very much a conversation with Joaquin Phoenix's Joker. And the Joker, as he shows up at the end of Matt Reeves' Batman, is, this, is in the same kind of mm, universe as Joaquin, as Joaquin Phoenix's Joker. This is not the Joker that he Ledger uh, embodied. This is a Joker that, yes, is an agent of chaos, but in a different way. This is a Joker who can be friends with Paul Dano's The Riddler. A Joker who creates a world in which Paul Dano's Riddler can become successful in his desire to create works of destructive art. So maybe it's really both the Batman and the Joker, or their yin-yang relationship, that's the more complete expression of how Americans see who they are throughout the different iterations of Batman and Joker. Now, I'm not going to talk about the 1966 Batman. I've never really watched it. I've always felt it to be a little bit silly. Um, but I do want to compare Nolan's Batman and Joker with Matt Reeves's Batman and Joker. But I want to do this through a very specific lens. Batman and Joker's relationship, their inability to extricate themselves from each other, something that's played upon in a lot of the comics and a lot of the movies, um, is something that I was thinking about when I was reading a wonderful and very interesting article by Jonathan Haidt. Jonathan Haidt, you may know, is a um, a psychologist and he wrote a really interesting um, article for the Atlantic it's literally called why the past 10 years of American life have been uniquely stupid it's a wonderful article where he talks about the Tower of Babel and how social media is creating a new Tower of Babel for a new civilization yes those of you who listen to a Jonathan Paggio have your ears perked up I'm sure um, and he talks about the fall of civilization in ways that are very interesting for somebody who is admittedly a materialist and somebody who was a scientist first and foremost. Here's what he has to say. Historically, civilizations, quote, have relied on shared blood, gods, and enemies to counteract the tendency to split apart as they grow. But what is it that holds together large and diverse secular democracies such as the United States and India, or for that matter, modern Britain and France? Many of you will say, well, why can't it be a shared idea of God? Well, no longer the case, of course. So here's what he has to say. Social scientists have identified at least three major forces that collectively bind together successful democracies. One, social capital. That is, extensive social networks with high levels of trust. Two, strong institutions. And three, shared stories. Social media has weakened all three. Unquote. Now, this is fascinating to me, right? Because those of you who have been listening to um, this podcast know that I have a series on stories that unite during dark times. In it, I really underline the fact that shared stories is no longer a reality for this civilization. We now no longer have a shared story. We might have had one as recent as 2020, but because of various reasons, various factors at play, including the develop the long development of COVID and various other things, we no longer have a shared story that can hold our civilization up. Now, I'm talking about the civilization that is modern America and the West that it props up, like, like uh, Paul Kingsnorth said. So shared stories can't be it. And no, the MCU is no longer a shared story. No, our blockbusters are no longer a shared story. Because even if the long arc leading to um, 
the Infinity Stones in the MCU was something that a large swath of the American population could take part in. That fell apart as soon as we have we had Disney Plus MCU, and the stories that have just basically been fracturing, uh, falling apart under their own weight and under the weight of the massive need to continue a large storyline that is necessary for you know merchandising sales. Uh, and also the, the fact that they've been undermining, as I've mentioned before, many of the things that they've held up before. A lot of the a lot of the uh, Disney Plus MCU stories have been about uh, discrediting heroes and even anti-heroes um, and replacing them with something that is not entirely nobody's really entirely sure what. I haven't seen the new Doctor Strange, but apparently that just continues the trend so shared stories are not something that will prop us up anymore i hope they may become that but we have to consciously choose better stories part of the reason why i even have this podcast in the first place another one is social capital right extensive social networks with high levels of trust this in this case social networks isn't the thing on the computer it's actual networks of socialization like the people that you hang out with the people that you know uh, it used to be that social networks were an extension of that. That's when you used to use Facebook in order to check out your friend's timeline and to see what photos of their of their kids or whatever they had over the last few months. That's before the never-ending, permanently, internally scrolling feed. Remember those days? Seems like an age ago. So social capital is also falling apart because the current iterations of social media are doing more to disintegrate social networks as in networks between people the 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 shared bonds between communities that have to do with the kinds of things like blood and gods as uh, jonathan Haidt somewhat dismissively included in the previous paragraph and the third is strong institutions oh my gosh we are in trouble <laughs> what strong institutions i mean all you have to do is spend five minutes on any on any news network it doesn't matter whether you're looking at a right news ne network or a left news network all you have to do is spend half a second watching some of the news networks coming out of Russia to know that there is nothing strong about the institutions. There's nothing but information war. There's nothing but narrative building. There's nothing here that in any way, shape, or form is tending towards the unification or the social cohesion of this civilization as it falls apart before our eyes. Doom words? Yeah, well, I'm a writer. Sorry. This is how I see it, and I'm not the only one. What I really find interesting, though, about this this little paragraph in the very long Atlantic article is that it really shows how the two versions of Batman, the Nolan version of Batman and the new version of Batman, are expressions of very different eras in American history. I've, I've already started to talk extensively about Matt Reeves' Batman. And if we, if we think about it in terms of these three major forces that bind together successful democracies, social capital, strong institutions, and shared stories, there is, a, there is a very serious lack of all three in the story told by Batman. Social capital is undermined by the misuse of social media and the viral nature of violence that... Paul Dano's Riddler takes advantage of in order to sow absolute chaos in the already dark and messed up Gotham. So social capital is something that can't help you. In fact, it'll probably make things worse in the world of the Batman. Strong institutions, everyone is corrupt in the world of the Batman. Everyone. The only image that can possibly lead us out is the progressive black candidate for mayor of Gotham. But she doesn't do much. 
in her one moment where she is allowed to have center stage. And in the story, it seems to be an opportunity for her to take a leading role in leading Gotham out of the darkness, literal and figurative. She gets shot immediately. And it seems like she's out of the story. She ends up surviving. And there is a glimmer of hope that she might be a kind of beacon for the future, but certainly nothing in this film. And of course, shared stories. What shared story? There is no shared story uh, even about who the Batman is. It's part of the point of, the of, of this movie. Who is the Batman? Is he vigilante? Is he dangerous criminal? Or is he self-sacrificing crime fighter? Everybody has their own version of it, and nobody has a shared story of it. Part of what's interesting about this movie is that it's an attempt to show how a shared narrative about the Batman might be formed by the end of the movie. But again, we're talking about tiny little baby steps in terms of the development of morality. At the end of the story, Gotham is still extremely dark. At the end of the story, our Batman is still a very young version of himself who is still trying out different versions of what he might become. He is certainly not the almost all-powerful version of himself that we see in, uh, in the uh, Christopher Nolan movies. Now, if we look through this lens, the lens of these three major forces that bind together uh, democracies, and we look at specifically the Dark Knight. Now, there's a reason why I'm looking specifically at the Dark Knight. Batman Begins is a great movie. It, however, is a traditional fairy tale or myth. It's an origin story. It fits beautifully within the um, structure of a hero's journey. I love it for that reason. But it's not it doesn't quite fit into the structure of what we're talking about here today. And the third one, The Dark Knight Rises, I thought was a failure largely. I don't, I didn't like it very much. I haven't watched it since it came out. And for me, the promise of what The Dark Knight offered was not realized in The Dark Knight Rises. So I'm pretending it doesn't exist for the purposes of this exercise. Because I think that if you look merely at The Dark Knight by itself, without looking at the other two films at all, allow me this to do this. I know this is not exactly fair, but let's just pretend that that's what's going on here. Then I think you will see something really interesting about how we saw ourselves in 2005, not such a long time ago, certainly not even a generation ago. In that movie, what we see is a great... is What we see is a, uh, a triumph of social capital. That wonderful scene on the ferry when the two boats are uh, the the two boats are stuck, each one has a bomb, and uh, they have the the trigger for the bomb on the other boat. And the Joker expects both boats to go up in flames at midnight because he thinks that's what will happen when human beings are put in situations where they are like caged rats. But what happens is one of the people on death row, the scariest criminal of them all, does what you should have done hours ago, as he says, takes the trigger and throws it out the window, and both boats end up a triumph of social cohesion, specifically in the social capital sense, as in social networks with high levels of trust, such high levels of trust that they were even willing to put their lives in the hands of condemned criminals, as in family people, were just regular people on the street were willing to put their lives in the hands. When... when the you know when push came to shove there was a lot of conversation going either way it didn't it wasn't clear whether they'd be able to prevail but they ultimately did the shared stories bit everybody knows the batman 
Batman in uh, in uh, Chris Nolan's version is a legend already. He's established himself. The origin story is over, over and done with. And although there are some in these in the inst in the institution in the institutions of the police and the and the government that would prefer not collaborating with a masked vigilante, especially since he's he's uh, in the movie um, encouraging all kinds of <laughs> second-rate copycats. Still, there is a shared story, a story, a story that Gotham can get behind, a story of how we have a protector who is willing to do the difficult things, not the ultimate thing, not killing, but all the everything else he's willing to do. And it's partially the brilliance of the movie that it breaks that shared story in the end when Batman agrees to sacrifice himself and even sacrifice his legend, his story. But for what? Self-sacrificial self storylines always get me because they reflect the structure of the hero's journey, because they reflect the structure of stories as they've been told for a very long time. And if you have been paying attention, you know that people like J.R.R. Tolkien believe that this kind of structure was historicized by uh, the coming of Christ, by the stories in the gospel. So these are stories that have been, that, are ref that appear over and over again throughout human history and throughout human storytelling all over the world throughout history before the coming of Christ and after. So the, for me personally, this is a story trope that I love. But in, in, the, in the Dark Knight, in Christopher Nolan's Dark Knight, we have a version of it that's, that's really profound because it's not merely about the sacrifice of the individual for the sake of his transcend, transcendence of inner and outer darkness, which is what happens in Matt Reeves. So it's the act of sacrifice that, that allows him to become a hero. But the act of sacrifice in... Chris Nolan's Batman is an act of sacrifice of a story for the sake of another story. And that story is the story of strong institutions. It's really fascinating to think about how in 2005, in the immediate aftermath of 9-11, and already in, in the ongoing quagmire that became the Afghanistan and Iraq wars, 2005, there still was a sense of strong cohesion behind strong institutions. America was taking it to the enemy. And there, you know, that, that cohesion was starting to fray, but there was still a high level of patriotism in the sense that we believe our institutions are strong enough to preserve us whole as and safe from the terrorists on our on our borders, on our fringes, right just beyond the margins of what is safe. And that is what Batman sacrifices himself to uphold. He sacrifices himself to uphold the ideal of a white knight, not a dark knight. The white knight being Harvey Dent, the institutional um, hero, the DA, who transcends all institutional corruption and internal darkness, initially, to be the kind of hero that the entire pop people could get behind precisely because he was an expression of, of the collective will of a democracy. He was elected. This kind of story now, if Christopher Nolan's Dark Knight came out now, it would not have that storyline because it wouldn't resonate because nobody has anymore that kind of, after what happened in 2016, after the uh, election of Trump and everything that happened after that, and all of the intense polarization in ideology that happened as a result, or even before, this was simply a revelation of what was already at the heart of it, it just became worse and worse as, as time went on. 
And certainly with COVID and with the the trouble in, in Ukraine, the, the war in Ukraine, and the intense information war that's going on from all sides, institutions, trust in institutions is at a all-time low. We laugh at them. We don't believe that they can make us safe, especially as gas prices go up like crazy. And as even Saudi Arabia makes comic videos about President Biden. I mean, we live in a very strange time. So to look at, at that act of sacrifice that Batman, that uh, Christian Bale's Batman does, I found it to be remarkably inspiring, considering the fact that this, is, this would have been impossible now in 2022. 17 years later, and that story just, it's already a thing of the past. It's just a really interesting thing to see. And of course, the Joker of that story is a Joker that is very much a reflection or an embodiment of that chaos from beyond the edges. That fear of things exploding in our backyard for no apparent reason. That fear that is personified by the shrouded ISIS freedom fighter terrorist type, the one that has no face, the one that embraces chaos for the sake of chaos, the one whom, with whom you cannot reason, the one who seems to initially be simply nothing more than a higher gun, but then consciously begins to embody a kind of marriage with chaos that leads to total madness. That's Heath Ledger's Joker. Heath Ledger's Joker is such an interesting and such a fascinating character study specifically for that movie and that time because he is so anti-institutional, because he is so anti-social capital, because he is so much about shattering any sense of a shared story. Everything he does is about destroying the foundation of civilization and watching it burn merely for the pleasure of it. Remember Alfred talking about his experience with the warlord in Southeast Asia. Some men just want to see it burn. That villain in that moment needed not the Dark Knight, the movie seems to say, but the sacrifice of the Dark Knight for the sake of the propping up of a corrupt system in the hopes that those few good men in the institutions, in the institutionalized system, will finally be able to find the strength to be able to just push on enough to keep the chaos at bay. It's a dark vision, but it's still a hopeful one. And the only vision that Matt Reeves' Batman is able to present us in terms of hope for the future is a kind of stick with us Maybe you'll see him turn into Batman, turn into something strong. But again, the final scene in that movie is not a scene of Batman. It's a scene of Paul Dano and the Joker, Paul Dano's Riddler and the Joker laughing. Very dark and uh, frightening scene. So where do we go from here? As violence becomes an ever more present reality in our backyard sometimes, how do we best react to it in the story sense? Is there any way that we can interact with stories, any way that we can read certain stories or even start writing them? What sort of stories should we read or movies should we watch to help deal with us, help us deal with this reality? Should we consciously avoid violence in media because it's encouraging violence in people? Should we 
put more restrictions on violence in media because it does there does seem to be a connection between violence and art and violence in life or should we instead allow for our artists to depict it realistically to show the shock value of it to shock the to hope that the viewer gets shocked out of any desire to do evil well that's a question that's loaded isn't it and it's something that i'm afraid we'll have to discuss next time when we consider the question specifically of violence something else catharsis and how violence or depictions of violence in certain kinds of stories can actually be good for you but that's what we're going to talk about next time thank you for listening if you like what you've heard and you'd like to delve more deeply into this topic check out my audio series on stories that unite in dark times available exclusively at nicholaskotar.com forward slash stories that unite and if you're hankering for more fantasy stories check out my own Raven Sun epic fantasy series inspired by Russian fairy tales available now in audio paperback and ebook formats this show is produced by the wonderful Derek Cummins and the beautiful title music is Lighthouse in the Rain originally composed by Velislava Franta you can find her work on SoundCloud